Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Two things we know about our political leadership in America is that it is too old and too white. Our guests this week are working to change that. I'm happy to be joined by Zach Malamed and Sidney Brown of The Next 50, a PAC working to elect the next generation of Democratic leaders. The average age in the House is 58. The average age in the Senate is 63. There are very, very few young people in these rooms. House Democrats have just elected a new generation of leaders just weeks before the Republicans take control. The first member of Generation Z ever elected to Congress won his election on Tuesday in Florida's 10th congressional district. The winner, Maxwell Frost, a 25-year-old Democrat. When you think about all these new people, even in the last six months that registered to vote, it's all young people. And last I checked, young people, they don't even take calls from their mothers. I can't imagine they take calls from pollsters. <laughs> My name is Sydney Minetta Brown, and I'm fighting for a generation of leaders who prioritize social justice, criminal justice, and economic justice. My name is Zach Malamud, and I'm fighting to build a more representative democracy. Sorry, sorry not sorry. sorry. Zach and Sydney, welcome to Sorry Not Sorry. I want to talk about the next 50, but first, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your backgrounds? Zach, you can go first. Sure. I got started in my career in education advocacy. I spent time traveling the country, building networks of students who are advocating for education justice from Iowa to Kentucky, Alaska to Utah, New York to California. And I had this privilege in the wake of the 2016 election of being able to travel to schools across the country in red, blue, purple industrial communities. And one of the things I started to recognize in doing my education work, fighting for higher standards for students, higher quality education, is that students were coming to school every day, dealing at home with a broken immigration system, an unjust healthcare system, their communities being ravaged by climate change. And we were having conversations about raising math standards, and we're having conversations about changing teacher or improving teacher quality. And the reality of it all was that schools carry the baggage of all of the injustices that students are facing in their respective communities. So that's when I started to realize that in order to prove education, we need to think about the societal issues that schools need to deal with every single day. And so as someone who has dedicated most of his career to education advocacy, investing in the young leaders doing that education advocacy work, thought it might be time to also invest in those leaders who are stepping up to shape the policies that most affected our schools. Yeah. And I feel like education really is the intersection to all of these justice issues. 
And how about you, Sydney? Uh, I've been passionate for and have been fighting for social justice since I was really young. When I was 12, someone very close to our family was incarcerated. And as a Black woman, discovering what it was like to grow up in a country that wasn't designed for you, wasn't designed for your people, was something that was really staggering. And as I sort of began to understand why this individual had been incarcerated, was treated wrongfully because of the colors of his skin as I would visit him and he eventually got out of jail and his case got expunged, I really started to educate myself about criminal justice reform, good defense, prosecutions, uh, how overarching policies, you know, impact people at every step of their lives and what that looks like for Black Americans in particular. My dad grew up in deeply segregated Texas. So as this was going on, I would start to talk to him about what it was like going to movie theater where he had to enter through a different door as a Black man. His first job, my dad's first job ever, was a shoeshine boy at a whites-only barber shop. So as I grew and as I began to learn more about the history and as I began to understand my place in America, what I really wanted to do was make it my commitment that this generation, my generation, in partnership, of course, with past leaders who I look up to greatly, actually create the tangible change that leaves a brighter America for the generations that come after me. And so I've been very fortunate to work for some of those who I look up to dearly. I've worked on Capitol Hill. I worked for the extraordinary Cory Booker, Barbara Lee, Hakeem Jeffries, Nancy Pelosi, among others. And I was involved in college organizing, specifically for women's rights. And that's when I met Zach was upon graduation. And that's what made me so excited about the next 50s, because the next generation leaders like we're here and we feel the pain and we acknowledge the violence. And I, as well as so many other young people all over the country, want to do everything in my power to really ensure that these generations that come after me don't have to see the same headlines that I had to grow up with. And so I really want to make sure that young people have a seat at the decision-making table where decisions are being made about my future. I mean, we know that policies, once they're passed, at least federally, oftentimes take two, three, four, even 10 years to really be enacted. So the decisions that are being made right now Those are the things that are going to impact me when I am a real adult, for lack of a better word, and I'm in my 30s and 40s and the type of world that I want to see. I want to have a hand in making the decisions about what that looks like. So that's a perfect segue. Tell us about the next 50. Yeah. So, you know, 50 years ago, this is what the name is based on. 50 years ago, conservatives came up with a plan. It's known as the Powell Memo. And in that plan, they made a commitment towards building power over the course of 50 years. Because what we know is that political power is not built overnight. It's built over the course of years and decades. And it's no coincidence that 50 years later, after the Powell Memo was written, we now saw the reversal of the Roe v. Wade decision with the Dobbs decision that came down this past June. A core part of that plan, though, was a commitment toward investing in young people. And in the lead up to Trump, we saw an investment of three times or 500 million more than the left had made in young people by the right. And that we believe it's no coincidence that over 50% of those in the last Congress who are 50 years old and under were Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene, like Madison Cawthorn, like Lauren Boebert, like Tom Cotton, like Josh Hawley. The U.S. Constitution requires members of the House to be a minimum of 25 years old. And the last 25-year-old elected to Congress, sworn in right before January 6th, was... Republican Congressman Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina, you remember him. Cawthorn was initially embraced by Trump, a bunch of other Republicans, until a series of scandals tarnished his appeal. Most notably, his claim that Republican colleagues invited him to cocaine-fueled orgies. By the way, the crazy thing is they have all came through the same organizations. It's no coincidence that these people are in office. They didn't just come out of thin air. 
they were all trained by the same organizations like the Leadership Institute. We see with the courts, with Brett Kavanaugh, the Federalist Society. And so at the next 50, what we recognize, though, is that we have a pluralistic movement where there are a lot of great leaders stepping up to lead who don't necessarily have access to the money to lead and get the power that they, they deserve. And so what we've made a commitment to do is to back 50 leaders who are 50 years old and under every two years, primarily in swing districts and states, to make sure that when great leaders step up to lead, they have access to the capital to lead successfully. What's unfortunate in our current political climate is that you do need a certain amount of capital to succeed. And Alyssa, it was about two years ago that you graciously hosted a Zoom event for the next 50 in the middle of the pandemic when we were getting started. And I learned something in the middle of that Zoom when we had Congresswoman Lauren Underwood share with us that it's not leaders when they're raising money don't just need the money to be elected to office. Once they're in office, they need to raise money to get into positions of leadership. And so what you see with Congresswoman Lauren Underwood in her capacity raising the money that she's been able to raise, she's now the first Black woman in congressional leadership since former Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm. That's the power that comes when we make sure that people who, by the way, Lauren is the youngest Black woman ever elected to Congress. And she's amazing. Yeah. Incredible, right? She adds a perspective as a former nurse, et cetera, that like we needed in the time of crisis that we had during the pandemic. This movie that I produced, she's actually in. We followed her, the documentary, and we followed her campaign. It's called Surge. And so that's where I got to know her. And she's just really just amazing. And yes, what people do not know is that they're not just campaigning and raising money to run. And for their campaign, they're raising money to actually be able to be on committees. Yep. I actually have a great story from this cycle that I'd love to share. So on this cycle, by the way, our first cycle, where we were backing 50 leaders. We became the number one pack investing in young Democrats for the next generation of Democrats. And in the process, 80% of the leaders we backed were elected to office. 64% are in positions of leadership within their state or legislative bodies. And one of those people I want to highlight is newly elected state senator Darren Camilleri. When we backed state senator Darren Camilleri in the state of Michigan, he was perceived to be the bellwether state senate candidate, meaning that if Darren didn't win his seat, we probably would be in state senate. Darren Camilleri, a state house member, 31 years old, a former teacher and a Teach for America alum, decided that he was going to step up and run for that seat. And when we met him, he had a goal of raising $500,000 or so for the cycle. We took him under our wing, made him one of our 50 leaders. By the end of the summer, he had raised $500,000. By the end of the cycle, I believe he broke $800,000. Now, someone might say to you, he probably raised more money than he needed. But the truth of the matter is, he won his district by more than 10 points. And in winning his district by more than 10 points, solidified his hold on that seat. And in solidifying his hold on that seat, He was then appointed as a freshman member of the state Senate at 31 years old, as a Mexican Maltese American, a son of immigrants, a former teacher, to become the assistant majority leader of the Michigan State Senate. And as a former teacher, was appointed chair of the school budget committee, where again, as a 31-year-old former teacher, is in charge of dismantling the Betsy DeVos education agenda in her home state. That only happens when we make sure that this next generation of leaders has the resources that they need to lead. And that's what The Next 50 is about.
I want to talk about two particularly obvious examples of people who have held on to power for like a really long time. Democrat Dianne Feinstein of California and Republican Chuck Grassley of Iowa. Let's talk about what the effects are on the United States when people spend so many decades in office holding on to seats into their 90s. You know, when we talk about Dianne Feinstein out of California, I just want to acknowledge the extraordinary career that she has had before we get into the fact that obviously she is getting a lot older right now. She was elected to the Senate in 1992 alongside Barbara Boxer. It was what they called the year of the women at that point. And she did so much for the state of California, for this country, was just such a leader in her prime. But I think that there comes a certain point in time. A great example is uh, Nancy Pelosi and former House leadership that have passed the torch onto this next generation. I mean, you saw Nancy Pelosi, Jim Clyburn, Steny Hoyer all step back and step down at the exact same time to usher in this new leadership that is Hakeem Jeffries. It was a passing of the baton. You know, it's Catherine Clark. It's Pete Aguilar. It's really an extraordinary next generational sort of step. What does this new team bring to the table? Well, first of all, shout out to Generation X, right? It's our time. It's a, you know, this is the, this is the first crop of genera- Generation X leaders to really uh, kind of take control. These are guys in their mid to late 40s, early 50s uh, that are, are going to be the people in charge. And they are all dynamic personalities. They are people uh, who have uh, been in Congress for some time, uh, but also really have the support and loyalty uh, amongst their membership. And I think... It's been a really unique experience, at least for me, to see that generational shift. I haven't, again, these people have been in office for so long that I'm 21, but I have never seen that generational step that I can remember at least. And so I think when you have these people that are in office, it's very difficult to know anything else other than being an elected official. But when you cling on to power for so long, despite doing what is extraordinary, you end up with potentially a situation like the Honorable Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She held on to that seat so long, people were urging her stepped down under President Obama. She didn't want to. Nobody's going to say that RBG didn't do extraordinary things. She did. But because she held on to that power for so long, some might say that inherently made it so that we have a court now that leans so far to the right that is ultra politicized. So sometimes when you hold on to power for too long, at least in my opinion, and you don't give the next generation the baton and ensure that the next generation is a vital extension rather than a threat to the power that you have, you are putting in jeopardy the legacy that you've created for yourself. And it's better to hand that legacy, hand that power, hand that generational shift over rather than tarnish it by staying over your welcome. You know, it's extraordinary. I just realized when Sydney said this, you know, Sydney shared her age on the podcast and it's extraordinary what she's accomplished at this stage. But I also realized when saying that, that it, over the course of her whole life, she has never seen, and I don't recall personally, anyone else in House Democratic leadership other than Nancy Pelosi Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn. And so we've actually never seen what the next generation of leadership could look like. We never had that opportunity to imagine what a future Speaker of the House, Sidney Brown, could look like. And now we're seeing that. It was so cool if you saw the other day, President Biden, Kamala Harris, and next to them was Pete Aguilar, Hakeem Jeffries, and Catherine Clark. We started to imagine what the next generation of Democratic leadership could look like. And I want to emphasize that when you have this next generation, you know, oftentimes, older folks who are in office, they do feel threatened, like with this next generation coming through, but to really see it and understand it as a vital extension. And we stand on the shoulders of the people who came before us. Like I'm only here able to do what I do because of the people that came before me. I'm not trying to tarnish or take over 
what their legacy may or may not have been, but rather serve as an extension for it in partnership so that their legacy can be preserved so that we speak highly of their names. I think people feel threatened because there is such a societal focus on age and on anti-aging and on this sort of idea that you can hold on to beauty or you could hold on to youth or you can hold on to power. And it's a billion dollar industry. I grew up in the entertainment industry as a child star, mind you, having people say, save your money because you're going to hit a certain age and there's no roles for women at that point. So I think that we're just always bombarded with this idea of that youth is sort of going to take over. And some people feel super threatened by that. What do you say to people that say that it's ageist to support only younger candidates? Look. The reality of the next 50s work is that we're not trying to force this current generation of leadership out of office. We're trying to usher the next generation in to office. And right now, when you look at the average age of a member of Congress, it's 58 years old. So when we do 50 years old and under, we're just looking at averaging down. It's funny, when we launched our work publicly, there was a CNN profile on our work, and originally the age was 45 and under. We actually couldn't find enough people 45 years old and under running in competitive swing districts and states to support. So we raised the number to 50. And I saw someone comment on Twitter, a venture capitalist, I believe it was. And they said, wait, 45 years old and under or 50 years old and under is young in politics? Yeah, I mean, that is young in politics. <laughs> it's not like you have a 21-year-old Mark Zuckerberg starting Facebook here. A 21-year-old couldn't even be a member of Congress right now. That's what's surreal. I often say to folks, like, if John Ossoff were to become president at the same age as Joe Biden, the year would be 2064. Put that in context. But that's what building long-term political power is like. It takes years. That's a challenging question, I think, for us to engage with. Right now, what we've seen, interestingly, on Capitol Hill is when Newt Gingrich became Speaker of the House for the Republicans, he instituted a term limit on committee chairmanships. And so that is why you see people, Republicans on Capitol Hill, continuously cycle in. And there is a younger generation of leadership there, where at some point, Republicans say, we don't have much more that we can do on Capitol Hill. It's time for us to retire and cash out on K Street. I don't know that that's the right solution either, but rather we should start to recognize that there is a new generation that's ready to step up and lead. We saw that not just in the capacity of people stepping up to run for office, but we've also seen a surge in young voters stepping up to vote. And they were the difference in the 2018 and 2020 elections. They were, again, a major factor in 2022. So I think the reality of the circumstance is not that we necessarily needed term limits, but rather we needed to show young people and give young people this next generation a vision for what their leadership could look like. And now that we're investing in young leaders, they're going to step up and lead and they're going to win. And they are winning, regardless of whether or not there are term limits. You mentioned young voters, and really they're a bit of a paradox. They are kind of that one demographic with the largest increase in voting participation, but they're still also the demographic with the lowest voting participation, with about 27% of voters under 29 turning out in the 2022 midterms. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's tricky, right? Because I live, and I'm fortunate enough to be from San Francisco, and here... It was like the second I turned 16, it was like, okay, I'm going to pre-register to vote. All my friends are going to do it. And it was something that was just part of the norm here. But I think nationwide, at least what I've noticed since sort of moving away from home, is that young people are often feeling jaded and almost a little put off with the entire system of government at the moment. A kid like me shouldn't be interested in politics. Most young people are fed up with it all. 
In a time of such uncertainty and turmoil, my mates are more bored than ever. I think that they want something that the American government is not producing. They're not producing it on their terms. They're not producing it fast enough. And there isn't enough folks in office that are able to sort of give young people what it is that they want and excite them. They're sort of lacking that excitement. And when I think about it, I think, okay, we had the Dobbs decision, right? We had the falling of Roe. That was something that got young people excited because we said, oh my God, for the first time in American history, the Supreme Court has stripped people of their rights as opposed to given them more rights. And so that was sort of a flashbulb moment where it was like, that's exciting. That's getting us up. That's getting us out. I also think in a lot of states, obviously voting is extraordinarily difficult. I mentioned San Francisco, California. I get my ballot mailed to me. I literally don't have to do anything. It just comes in the mail. I fill it out. I put it back in the mail and I'm good to go. But in so many other states across the country, it is not easy to vote. It's not easy to just fill out a ballot and put it back in the mail. You have to take work off. They have to take school off. They have to figure out how to get their IDs. There's all of these laws in place that are literally inhibiting people from voting. It's intense voter suppression. We're seeing it all over the country. And so sometimes it's tricky. But I think the main thing that I'm trying to say here is that young people are lacking the enthusiasm and the excitement, and they're not engaged enough where they're actually making a voting plan to get out and vote. Yeah, I think the voter suppression is undeniable. But in my many years of doing this, it has always been about how do we get the youth vote out? How do we get the youth vote? And so there does come a point where you're like, you know, stop trying to ask the question and start actually coming up with solutions, which is maybe you should come up with a youth platform on issues that they actually care about, right? And people that they get excited about, candidates that they're excited about that are connecting with them on their level. People that they want to go out and vote for because they love the platform, they resonate with the platform, they resonate with the candidate. And I think that, again, goes to ushering in this next generation of leadership. Like We want to see people that look like us. We want it to be representative of what we look like, you know? I think, though, younger voters might say, I need a government that speaks to me to participate in the process. But yet, on the other hand, you have this government that basically says, until you participate, there's not a lot of incentive for us to pay any attention to you. So how do we get better voter participation among younger voters with that kind of paradox? So I had a conversation with Congressman Max Rose, I think it was about two years ago. We were talking about this issue of getting young voters out to the polls. And he said, Zach, let's reframe that. It's not about getting people out to vote. It's about earning their vote. And I think what you've seen with the Biden administration now is that they have seen the power of young voters turning out. And because young people have shown up, they're starting to show responsive policies. You see the action they've taken on climate. You see the action they've tried to take on student loan debt. That is showing young people that when they turn out to vote, their government is going to be responsive to them. Now, what we also need is for people, young people in particular, to see themselves represented in government when they're voting for folks. One of my favorite stories from this cycle of the leaders we back, we had five women who had kids on the campaign trail. Now, that's a perspective that you now bring to office, that young people, whether no matter their age, they see themselves represented in elected office holders. That's extraordinary, by the way. We're not just talking about five people who have previously had kids. We had five candidates who had children on the campaign trail. That is an extraordinary feat as is. But when we're thinking about this challenge of getting young people out to vote or earning their vote, One, it's making sure that we have policies that are responsive to their interests and their needs. And number two, it's making sure that young people see themselves elected in government. And right now, the reality is that young people don't have much confidence in democracy. 
It's a real thing, though. And, and, and a lot of people say are having conversations right now about how we protect and secure democracy. And the first question I ask everybody is not what we should do to protect and secure democracy, but why democracy? And when you ask the question of why democracy, you then get to the point of what is the end game? What is the purpose of democracy? It is to, from my vantage point, ensure the security and prosperity of all Americans. But that really boils down to the point that we need to ensure that when we have a democracy and we're asking people to show up to vote, that we have a democracy that's working for the people. And a democracy, in this case, as we're talking about young voters, that's working for and serving young voters. And until we do that, young people won't show up to vote and they won't have faith in democracy. And that's where you see the crumbling of our critical and democratic infrastructure right now. And we don't want to see that continue to erode. It is amazing how we didn't really have the foresight to say, you know what, look at what the Republicans are doing. They have a 50-year plan. We need to counterattack with our own 50-year plan. And it always just feels like we're reactive instead of proactive. I want to go back to voter suppression because it's obviously a really big deal. And states with Republican government seem to be working really fucking hard to impede voting by young voters, doing everything from taking away polling places to trying to block out-of-state college students from voting where they live most of the year. So what effect does this have? And I think more importantly, how do we fight that? Look, when I was a college student, I remember voting, I think it was in the 2012 election in the midst of Hurricane Sandy. And I was an absentee voter. I was voting from the state of Maryland, but I, I was a resident of actually what is now Congressman George Santos's congressional district. And I didn't know where to get stamps because I had never really had to send any physical mail out. When you think about voter suppression, it's not just the waiting in lines. It's the process that we're forced to go through to actually just vote in the first place. More and more college students are becoming politically active and because college students tend to lean to the left, Republican lawmakers are panicking about it and they're passing laws that are making it increasingly difficult for them to vote. This was a great story that was reported by the New York Times and I wanna give you the details on what they found. Now, their turnout, meaning college students in the 2018 midterms, 40.3% of 10 million students tracked by Tufts University's Institute for Democracy and Higher Education was more than double the rate in the 2014 midterms, easily exceeding an already robust increase in national turnout. Energized by issues like climate change and the Trump presidency, students have suddenly emerged uh, have suddenly emerged as a potentially crucial voting block in the 2020 general election. And I don't think Sydney and I are going to proclaim on this call to be experts on the modernization of voting. But it is probably time that we start to do things that are a little bit more intuitive and make it easier for people to vote for the sheer purpose of simplifying the process and engaging more people in the system. There are some logical things here. I shouldn't have to go figure out where to get a stamp to vote. The government should make it easier on us to vote. And right now, as a college student, if I can't figure out where to get a stamp to vote, I'm not voting even if I care about voting. Well, that was one of the things that I quasi touched on earlier. But when I was in college, I led the college Democrats at USC. And it was like the largest student organization that focused on political work. We had about a thousand members. And one of the things that we focused on really heavily, at least in 2022, was how I had a program where people could come to the executive board, me, my political director, Sarah, and say, hey, like, I'm not registered to vote. 
A, I want to register in my home state, depending on where I live, or B, I want to register in LA. How do I do it? And I had one kid who came to me from Oklahoma, Democratic kid, comes to me and says, hey, I want to register to vote. I don't know how to get my mail-in ballot. I don't know how to do all these things. I was shocked at the amount of work that I had to put in with this student. We had to figure out how to get his ballot notarized. I had to call my mom. I was like, where do you get something notarized? What does that even mean? Does it cost money? We had to go. It costs money. He had to get his ballot notarized. We had to, yes, buy stamps, send it back. We were tracking it. I'm like, is it even going to go through? Is it not? Just that process. It really is just a bunch of bullshit. No, it was crazy. It was crazy. I was like, are you joking? You have to get it notarized. Like, I did not even know what that meant at the time. Those are the types of hoops where it's like, I'm very lucky that I was very devoted to it and that this one student voting in Oklahoma was devoted enough to figure out where to get this ballot notarized and actually send it back. But it's those types of things where it's like, that is something that is so common sense, yet also so difficult. And those are just the hoops that people have to jump through, especially young people where it's like, I'll be honest, lots of us have very short attention spans. If they say you have to take this paper, you have to fill it out, you have to do research, and then also have to take it to this other third party place have somebody else sign it, then you've got to buy a stamp, then you've got to go to the post office and do all of these things. Like, it's just not going to happen. But when you make it easy, like again, in California, I just get it mailed to my house. I don't need to buy a stamp. It's already done. I just put it back in the mail and it's good to go. Yeah, they don't want young people to vote. No. I want to look to the future. We're already in the 2024 election cycle. What do we got? We got Trump. He's announced. Nikki Haley, probably by the time this drops, she will have announced. We got Ron DeSantis, who who I feel like he's a villain in a movie. Like, I can't quite wrap my head around how that's a real person. It's like someone cast that guy to play the villain in this fictitious parallel universe. He openly makes these racist remarks. He makes racism the centerpiece of his campaign. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. He says the quiet bits out loud. What are we going to expect from Democrats in 2024 confronting the onslaught of the GOP hate? I mean, I've been talking to really, really, really smart people who are like, ooh, I can't wait to see the Republicans eat themselves. Wait, I'm like, it's not wrestling. That's not what it's supposed to be. Like, but honestly, I'm making the popcorn. So what do we need to do as Democrats? What should we as voters expect from Democrats in 2024 confronting this group of GOP hate? There used to be a saying that was popularized on the left that Republicans fall in line and Democrats fall in love. And I think we're starting to see a bit of a reversal on that one. You saw that with the orderly transition of leadership on the Democratic side in the House, and you're seeing the chaos that's now ensuing with the GOP in the House as they contemplate what to do with Congressman George Santos. People are tired of the crazy. They're tired of the chaos. They want a government that works for them. And I think Democrats have shown over the past two years with the remarkable record of legislative success that we've had at the federal level. But now you're seeing us also have at the state level. Democrats have a trifecta in the state of Michigan, I believe, for the first time since 1984. And they're passing historic legislation. 
in the first month. I think it's the first time in the past decade or so that in Michigan, they have passed substantial legislation within the first month of a new administration. That's with a Democratic trifecta. A clean sweep for Democrats in the state house taking control in Lansing in the aftermath of a string of electoral victories. We look forward to being strong partners with Governor Whitmer. House Democratic leader Donna Lisinski elevated to the majority alongside a raft of Democratic hopefuls swept to power in midterm contests statewide. As the night went on, we just kept racking them up. Um, we took majority in the state house for the first time in more than a decade. Also securing the Senate, something that hasn't happened since the 1980s. And so what we need to really be mes messaging is confidence over chaos. And I think that will in part be a winning message. Now there's more to do, there's nuance, there's regional nuance to this. We have a very challenging US Senate map this cycle, including three Senate seats that are up in the states of West Virginia, Ohio, and Montana. Those are not known to be democratic strongholds right now. And I would remind folks that when we passed the Affordable Care Act in 2009, we as a democratic party had US senators representing their states from the state of Michigan, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri, these are states that people historically, or right now, do not imagine to be Democratic states. And yet, that was what it took for Democrats to pass historic legislation. We now pass historic legislation with a 50-50 Senate majority, like unprecedented, slim margins that we were able to pass this level of historic legislation with. But now we need to start winning and investing in places that Democrats in recent history have not really imagined to be democratic. And that's what we're going to be up against this cycle. Those are the real challenges. How do we also make sure that we flip the house back in our favor? We lost ground in states like New York, a blue stronghold. California too, yeah. We didn't flip any seats. I know. In my district where my vacation home is, uh, has been a Republican stronghold for a really long time. And I always say if I were to run, it would be there. So at least I could make a dent because not that I think that I can win. But I do want to go back to this notion of that. It does feel like we're living in two completely separate countries. And then, of course, regionally as well. Florida, you guys, <laughs> is about to defund diversity and inclusion efforts at state colleges and universities. This asshole has banned AP African-American history from Florida schools. He is trafficking migrants to blue states as a political statement. Inhumane. What is the role of young people, both voters and elected officials, in fighting people like DeSantis? And how do we step in line to at least come together in that common good? Alyssa, I think, honestly, you mentioned it earlier. We need to be proactive rather than reactive, right? Like Ron DeSantis, every week, there's another headline that says some crazy thing he's done. I was heartbroken last week to see that he was saying that he was going to ban AP African-American history. That's something that's very scary. I could not even imagine. I couldn't even fathom. Like people say, oh, they're going to start going after education. And now it's really happening. When that program came out, I was so psyched. I said, you know what? 60 schools in the United States, they get to have AP African-American history. Like that makes me so happy. And if I was still in high school, I would sign up for it on the first day. And then I'm seeing all these speeches of these gorgeous high schoolers, these gorgeous middle schoolers in Florida who have beautiful souls that are out there crying, saying, I am so heartbroken that Ron DeSantis is taking this away from me, that he is silencing the history of the African-American experience of the United States. The United States was built on the backs of African-American people. It's shocking and it's disgusting and it's horrendous. And so as opposed to just 
seeing these headlines and reacting and saying, okay, Ron DeSantis did that, but here's what we're going to do to fight back. We need to take proactive steps and say, we will never let that happen in the first place. That will not even be a thing. It's not even going to be a thought. It is not even going to be a concept that somebody is going to be able to say that they're going to pass into law. We need to protect the things that we value before these people come and try and take them from us. And really ensuring that Democrats send that message and we become proactive rather than reactive. We show them that we have a meaningful, measurable track record of success in terms of protecting these rights. It's essential. Today, civil rights attorney and longtime Floridian Ben Crump gave a stern warning to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, saying he will sue his administration if it continues to block an advanced placement course on African-American studies from being taught in the state's high schools. During the announcement, Crump was joined by the three high school students who would be the lead plaintiffs in the lawsuit. In his latest war against knowledge, DeSantis has rejected the AP's African-American studies program, saying the course, quote, significantly lacks educational value. But I feel like we're not even being vocal enough with these DeSantis moves now. And I understand there is an element of we got Trump by talking about Trump, but Trump wasn't in power. This guy's in power actually implementing these changes. I could talk to you both for a really long time, and I appreciate you both so much in the work that you're doing. What advice do you have to younger people in general, but also younger people who are listening to this who are saying, you know what, maybe I could run for office? Well, Alyssa, thank you again for having us and for this early support you showed the Next 50, first of all. It's not without notice and without gratitude. And thank you for continuing that today by having us on. What advice I have for young people? I think it's always better to be in the arena and to get involved and to show up when you can. But we also recognize at the next 50, the privilege that one has when they have the opportunity to show up. And so the first way you can show up is showing up for your families. The next way you could do it, show up is by showing up for your schools, in your school, if you're a student. And the third way you could show up is by showing up in your community, whether it be by marching in the streets, signing petitions, showing up at protests. And when you have the opportunity to either contributing your dollars toward the leaders who most value your values. I will highlight that in the 2016 election cycle, because that's the last point I have data for, only 2% of U.S. philanthropy went toward our political system. And our government controls over $8.5 trillion in budget. If you want to address homelessness, if you want to address hunger, you need to invest in the leaders who best represent your values and the country that you want us to be and the values you want America to represent. The last and final piece is, if you're ready to do it, we want you to run for office to represent your communities. Step up for school board. You see how school boards are being taken over by the radicals and the crazies who are trying to defund our public education system. We need you running for school board. We need you running for municipal level offices. We need you running for state legislative offices. We need you running ultimately federally as well. But whatever form of service, we need you involved. We need you engaged. And I think we're grateful for the opportunity to support young people in their engagement at the next 50. Finally, what gives you hope? Mm. What gives me hope? So I actually will spin this a bit into my personal story. I grew up in New York, just outside of New York City in the wake of 9-11. And I vividly remember being in second grade on that day and my father taking me on a walk to explain what had happened after he himself had walked from Manhattan all the way to Long Island, picked me up at school. And in that moment, my my politics began to be governed by fear only at seven years old. But it was in the days that followed 
that I saw people come together to clean up the rubble at Ground Zero to help rebuild our communities, that I started to have a vision for a politics of hope. And as I fast forward to the beginning of the pandemic, I actually remember walking outside of my apartment building for what I thought might be the last time for the foreseeable future. And as I was coming home with my slice of pizza, preparing to lock down in New York City for what could be weeks, we had no idea what was ahead. I passed another father and son, and I heard the father explaining what was happening to the best of his own knowledge. And in the days that followed, we heard and we saw the stories of the frontline workers making sure that we protected and took care of our sick community members in New York. And at 7 p.m., I think it was every day, people would bang their pots outside to thank them. And so there was that sense of gratitude, but also the hope of seeing people show up for each other that I found. And then in this past election cycle, when democracy was on the line, and after the 2016 election, we felt like all was lost or nearly lost, we saw at the next 50, and we supported young people stepping up to protect and secure our elections by running for secretary of state, by running for county recorder. And these people had their lives threatened. They continue to have their lives threatened to this day. But it was young people who stepped up, who recognized what was at stake, and serve their communities. And so to me, that's what gives me hope, seeing all these young next generation leaders step up to serve in times of crisis. From the beginning of my conceptualization of public service around 9-11 to the pandemic and the frontline workers, and now with these elections, people who step up to protect and secure our elections, that's what gives me hope, seeing our country come together to serve each other and make sure that the America that we built only becomes stronger. Sydney. You know, it's interesting. As I sort of also reflect on my childhood and on growing up, I think one of the things that gives me the most hope is, I touched on it a little bit earlier, but talking to my dad about what it was like growing up in a segregated community and seeing the tremendous strides that we have made in his lifetime. He's an older dad, right? So he grew up in in the 40s, but seeing that within his lifetime, we were able to go from him being a shoeshine boy at a whites only barbershop to being a phenomenal civil rights leader in California and the tremendous strides that we've made just in his lifetime, which is not that long, gives me a lot of hope for where we can continue that work, continue that growth and to understand and see leaders like our next 50 leaders, like some of the folks I mentioned earlier, that ability to create change is not gone. Like I said, we are, we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. We consider the legacy and the work of those that came before us. And we are ready and willing and able to make those same types of civil rights strides today as we were 50 years ago. And so I'm really excited to see what that looks like for the next 50 years, if you will. Well, Sydney and Zach, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you, Alyssa. I think it's part of our our vision for a diverse government. And we mean diverse in terms of race and class and gender identity, but also generation. You know, you named those stats up top. The average age in the House is 58. The average age in the Senate is 63. There are very, very few young people in these rooms. That's a perspective that's just not part of the conversation. Now, as Christina pointed out, that doesn't mean that older folks can't advocate for progressive policies that speak to young people. But we have seen across the country young leaders, um, Megan Hunt in Nebraska, Fentrice Driscoll and Anna Eskamani in Florida, uh, across California, who have stood up and spoken with a moral clarity, with a fury, with a rage, and with a sense of urgency that young people are desperately looking for out of their leadership.
Listen, it is no secret that our political leadership does not reflect the makeup of our country. The advantages of incumbency mean that once elected, many people stay in office into their 80s and even 90s. It means that there is often very little room for new ideas and new perspectives in our government, and that hurts all of us. We need to elect younger leaders, people of color, women in big droves, sometimes even when we like the older person who has been holding an office. I think a lot about Mike Capuano and Ayanna Presley in Massachusetts. Congressman Capuano was a really good congressman. I liked him a lot. He was smart and progressive. He was an older white man representing a very diverse district near Boston. Ayanna Presley, a younger woman of color, ran against him and won. And now, not only will that district see progressive representation for many, many more years, but it has a representative that it is, in fact, representative of many of the residents' district. That kind of change changes us all for the better. The people at The Next 50 are working to help all of us see that change. I hope you'll join them. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.